Hello, 6th District. Welcome to Podcasting with Sean Caston. I'm Ben Finfer, joined by the candidate himself, Sean Caston. How you doing, Sean? Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm great. Thrilled to be doing this. Uh, we hope to be doing sort of a regular podcast on your name, by the way. Perfect for a nice little podcast pun. Um, as we're about five months out from the election and thought this would be a good way for you to talk to the voters and talk about some of the important issues. So really excited, looking forward to, to doing this on a pretty regular basis here. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to the top floor of the Willis Tower. The studio is really beautiful. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with the theater of the mind, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, there's, there's a lot to get into, as I said, uh, and as I'm sure you're aware, five months until people will have a chance to vote in the 6th District and everywhere for that matter. But um, we'll be getting into issues throughout some of these as well. Let's start off, though, with sort of just the obvious of, of your background and and what you've been up to and, and why you've decided to run in 2018. Sure. Totally new to politics. And I think I'm not the only person who November 2016 made made turn around a little bit. You know, I've, I've said that I think there's two things that Donald Trump has done beautifully for the country. He's created the Me Too movement and he's encouraged a lot of people to become politically active. Uh, in my particular case, we had just sold our company on September 16. I'd spent 16 years running a couple different businesses that all had a shared mission to profitably reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I started off my life as a biochemist, worked on developing cellulose biofuels, moved from there to the entrepreneurial side after I became concerned that there were far too many proven profitable ways to reduce CO2 that weren't being deployed for this to be a technology problem. And so built businesses to do it. We built about 80 projects and had done some policy work along the way. I'd testified before the Senate Energy Committee at one point way back when and worked on some policy issues, but always as a really as a side gig to my business, which was building what became about a $80 million business, um, 150 employees. And the basic idea of the business was that I find it morally unconscionable that we're not doing anything about climate change. And I was sick of arguing with people about it. So I figured if we can show that you can make money by reducing CO2 with proven old technologies, maybe people will copy me just because they're greedy. That's fine. <laughs> I don't really care why they copy me. We just got to get people all going in the same direction. And so then we'd sold our business in September of 16, had the you know the luxury to have a little bit of free time to think about what to do next. And then the election happened and was sitting there saying, how do you, if you have the luxury to not work for a year, as I'm fortunate enough to do, and you feel like you've got uh, something that can respond to the crises of the day and you don't act, shame on you. That's a short version of how this all started. So you had, prior to what happened in 2016, had never really thought about running for office or maybe in sort of the back of your mind and then that finally just pushed you over the uh, over the edge, to put it that way. Well, the, <laughs> this goes even beyond the November election. One of my absolute best and closest friends from college who works the State Department now, he is overseas a lot. He just come back from a, um, a round in Tajikistan and he said, let's all get together and go see a basketball game. So four of good friends of ours went down and we saw the last UT Austin game before March Madness uh, kicked off in, this would have been 16. Um, no, 17, because it was after the election. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about needing things to do and thinking about it and was very concerned with what was happening politically. And Tim said to me, you know, you should run for Congress. I said, Tim, you are so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so that was February, right? Right. And you know, and I was certainly thinking I got to do something to get politically engaged. But, you know, even at that point was thinking I could see maybe at some point being an appointee at the Department of Energy or FERC, but 
I wasn't thinking about this, but was watching what was going on on the ground. And um, I think the real, the push point for me was Katie McGinty, who's been a friend of mine forever. She used to be the chair of the Council of Environmental Quality in the Clinton White House, Secretary of Environment in Pennsylvania. She had lost her Senate race in Pennsylvania. She was running to, to be the Senate, narrowly lost the race. And after the dust settled for her around about when I got back from going to going to see UT play, um, actually it was yeah, UT Baylor, she had come up and we were just sort of talking about what we were both going to do next and networking, frankly. I said to her that I couldn't figure out why it is that I live in a district that's full of pretty good, pretty centrist people. It's not crazy left, crazy right, um, highly educated. We sit right between Argonne and Fermilab. I mean, there's a lot of really smart people in this district. And how is it that we keep electing somebody who is, who is uh, I think the technical term is Tea Party crazy? And, and Katie said, you know, the real challenge in districts like the one you're in is that the primary process has such low turnout historically that it's really hard to have a resume that can win the primary and can also win the general. And I said, okay, that seems like a problem for the country because if we're going to take back the House, we're going to need to flip a lot of districts like mine. So who do you see out there who I could maybe support who has the kind of resume that could win a primary and a general? And Katie sort of paused and looked at me and said, "You should, you should read your resume more." <laughs> and and that truly was the deciding point. And that was probably April or so. Yeah, and, and when you jump into something like this, obviously your family is very involved in the decision. Mm-hmm. I would imagine. Yeah, they, they they are absolutely. They've been totally wonderful and supportive. I will say. To some degree, they're used to this. You don't spend 16 years starting and running companies and not have a family that kind of understands that dad likes to jump in and take statistically improbable risks from time to time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, the fact that they kind of worked out maybe gave me a little bit more credibility on, on this ask. And, and as you mentioned, an incumbent who's been here for a while has, has gotten too comfortable I would say uh, so. You you know it's going to be a battle, but also the stakes are incredibly high. Not just for the six, but for the whole country, as you said. To, as the Democrats try to flip the house, so how much was that battle a consideration as you got into it as well? I can be honest about the fact that with four hundred thirty-five members of Congress, five thirty-five, I guess, right? Being one five thirty-fifth of a solution doesn't make you the deciding factor. But we got 23 seats to take back to flip the House. And this is a district that there's only five districts in the country that Hillary won by a bigger margin in 16 and elected a Republican. And there's only nine members of Congress who have voted more consistently with Trump than Peter Roskam. So if we can't flip this district, we can't flip the House. So this is this is the spear's edge to take the House back. And not because it's critical that any given party be in power. But we have to get an overall body politic that recognizes the cancer that is Donald Trump and acts as a check and balance like they're supposed to do. And, and unfortunately, that's not the modern Republican Party. I wish, I wish it was. And how does your background, you have a unique background as compared to, I'd say, a lot of members of Congress. I don't know how many congressmen currently have a science background like you do. How does that, you think, shape the way you would serve in the office when you're sworn in? It seems to me like in an ideal world, the experiences that are held by members of Congress are in some way representative of the experiences of the of the population at large, right? You know, we shouldn't have 100% scientists in Congress, but it'd be nice if we had a couple. You know, one of the things that is the unifying feature of how you are trained to think as a scientist, if you're doing it halfway well, is do not draw your conclusions until you've received the data. 
And when you get the data in, don't don't hold fast to your hypothesis beforehand, right? I mean, this is sort of the scientific method in a, in a nutshell. But it forces a certain discipline of thinking that's different than the discipline of thinking you get if you're trained as a lawyer or if you're trained you know, in some other field. It's that way of thinking that I think the absence of scientifically trained people in Washington really hurts us because we, we get people voting on bills without getting information and think that that's because it's sort of politically appropriate. I mean, how many newspaper articles do you see where someone says, well, this was a really crafty political move by Representative X? Yeah. Without any discussion of the policy, without any discussion of the facts. And the person who's like it's more of a game than anything else. And the the person who brings up the facts is like, well, you know, go home, nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, okay, some of us can be kind of nerdy, but let's have that diversity of perspective in there and and recognize that if you're making decisions that affect 300 million people's lives, um, it's good to know things. I I agree with that. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully, a lot of people do. uh, you, You mentioned climate change being an important issue for you, as it is for a lot of people in the country. And of course, in the sixth as well. So when you hear politicians, positions of power suggesting that it is a hoax or that humans haven't played a role, how crazy does that drive you? Look, you can believe in a flat earth. You can believe that the that gravity isn't real. You can believe that evolution isn't real. I don't care as long as you don't have the ability to make decisions that affect my life. If you think that somehow your right to believe complete falsehoods because they don't fit into your worldview empowers you to make decisions for others, you need to be unemployed as quickly as possible, period. I approach that from the view of climate change, but to be clear, I think we don't talk about climate change in a very useful way. We talk about it in the context of polar bears and rising sea levels and these things that are tragic and painful but are somehow external to us. We don't talk enough about the fact that we have ever more billion-dollar insurance events every year, exactly as all the climate models predicted. We have huge refugee crises that we are dealing with right now in North Africa because crops are failing in places that used to be more fertile, exactly as the climate models predicted. We have three major river systems that are driven by glaciers in the Himalayas that feed about almost half the world's population. And the models are predicting that those are going to be problems too if we don't act. Pick what issue is important to you from national security to balance of payments to, to refugees to food shortages to health and welfare. These all boil down to that issue and you have to deal with it. But it ain't the only problem that the current Congress and Mr. Roskam have decided that shouldn't impact facts, right? I mean, we, this guy voted to take away health care without even waiting for the report that said 20 million people are going to lose their health insurance and 40,000 people every year are going to die. To vote to do that without getting the information means you should go get a job where you can't hurt people. That seems like the logical idea. Uh, so climate change, and, and over the next five months, I think we'll have time to, to dive into these a lot deeper as well. But what other issues are on top of your mind as you go into this thing. And and obviously, it's not going to be an all-inclusive list. I'm sure there's some that uh, we won't even be able to mention here. But what are some really important issues to you? I used to tell my employees that there's there's two boxes on your desk, whether you think about it this way or not. One of them is the box of things you want to do, and the other is the box of things you have to do. And as long as the have-to-do box is empty, you're free to work on the want-to-do box. But the have-to-do box needs to get into that first. And unfortunately, I kind of fear that climate change is going to be in my want-to-do box rather than my have-to-do box. The tax bill that just passed is creating $2.3 trillion of deficits, is massively expanding the wealth inequality problem we've got as a country, 
um, is massively regressive. And we're going to have to deal with that and fix the mistakes that were made. We have a massive erosion of trust in the function of government that I don't think anybody's dealing with. I mean, are, are, are you as confident that your vote is going to be counted accurately today as you were this time before the 2016 election? Are you, you – know, we weren't talking about fake news. We weren't – we hadn't normalized the sort of incessant lying and misogyny and racism. Um, and I don't doubt that there are good, morally upstanding Republican members of Congress. But silence is acquiescence. And so I think the reality getting in there in January is going to be what do we do – to really get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, to start restoring this destruction of norms that's happened, and make sure that we have confidence in 2020 that, that our, the ship of state is being righted. That sounds good to me. Uh, last thing, and again, we'll have plenty of time over the next five months, and I know you'll be talking with voters a lot in that time. When uh, uh, Sean Caston isn't running for Congress, what's he doing in his free time? <laughs> and you've already mentioned Springsteen a few times to me, uh, so I know you're into the, to music a lot. Yeah, I play in a couple bar bands, which uh, is strange preparation for, for Congress because uh, playing the same song over and over again is a lot like giving a stump speech over and over again. <laughs> there, so there that's kind of fun. Um, the, uh, I, I used to be in better shape. I, I've run about a dozen marathons and like to do long-distance biking. And frankly, I got two lovely kids, and the more time I can get to spend with them, and the better. And that, a lovely life. That all sounds good. Uh, looking forward to learning more about you and, and how you feel about some of these important issues over the next five months. And of course, if people want to know more, website always a good place to go. And castingforcongress.com, C A S T E N F O R, congress.com. Click sign up, volunteer, and emails, and we'll keep you in the loop, and we'll talk on the next. Podcasting with Sean Caston. Podcasting with Sean Caston. He's Sean Caston, Democrat running for Congress in the 6th District. It's podcasting for Sean Caston. We'll return with future episodes. Thanks, Ben.